I'm really exciting, excited to be starting a new series this morning. You don't look as excited as I am. Come on, it's going to be a hard morning if there's no interaction at all. Let's try. I'm excited to be starting a new series. Oh, yeah, come on. Don't mind a bit of heckling. Uh, not too much, though. Like, kind of heckling, but not too much heckling. Get on. <laughs> Everybody apart from Alistair is allowed to echo. <laughs> We're going to be looking at the creed, and the series is entitled We Believe. Now, I'm hoping that this will be really helpful to people who are new to faith, just exploring faith. Also, for those of you who've been around the block, as Jen said earlier, um, stalwarts, then I think it's just helpful to be reminded of our foundations and so we're going to look at that. As people come towards this church and community, I'm, I'm often asked, you know, being the senior pastor, all difficult questions seem to come in my direction. So what, and people kind of look at me, so what do you believe? Like, ooh. And then, and then the next time they kind of look at me and they say it like this, you're the vineyard. Uh, is the wine involved? Is kind of the the feeling, and I'm like, well, actually, it's grape juice with communion. But um, but the question that they're really asking is this: Are you a bunch of weirdos? And the answer is absolutely yes. So just want to be really clear about that. But so is everyone else. So let's put that as a starting. I'm yet to find normal. So if you found somebody that's normal, I'd love to be introduced to them and uh, to see whether they really are that normal. So you, you might reasonably ask the question, well, what is it that you believe here at the vineyard? And I would say that we're something called orthodox Christians. What does the word orthodox mean? It's actually a composite word, which means made up of two other words. The first is orthos, which means right or true, and doxa, which means belief. So right or true belief. And according to the, the amazing source Wikipedia, reliable at all times, says this, in the narrow sense, the term means conforming to the Christian faith as represented in the creeds of the early church. So when people ask me, you know, what is it that you believe? And I would say, do you know what? We, we believe in, in the creeds. And then they're like, well, what are those? So as I talk about the creeds, how many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed? Okay, quite a few of you. So we have a phrase in the vineyard, the main and the plain. The main and the plain. And... That really means it's really very easy to start looking at things that are peripheral, things on the edge, and those things suddenly become really important. So when we're talking about the main and the plain, we're saying, let's focus on the things of utmost importance. Let's stay focused on those things. I, many years ago, went to study theology at university. Having not done GCSE uh, religious studies or A-level, so I went straight in, it was painful. Uh, so it was theology, study of God, all faiths. And I remember going in, and by year two, I was all over the place. I was like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? And I, some of the random questions that I was asking, um, you know, I had, I had started looking at a lot of really peripheral things. So it reached the point where I had to come back to, what is the main part of the Christian faith? And I remember doing Alpha at a point like this. I mean, I'd been a Christian for years, but going, who is Jesus? What he s- was he who he said he was? Did he or die? On the cross? So sometimes you almost have to come back to first order foundations to go, actually, 
What do I think about these things? And so when we're talking about the creeds, for me, we're talking about the main and the plain. We're talking about foundations of the Christian faith. Now, the creeds of the early church were really just summaries of the most important things that Christians believe. The Apostles' Creed is perhaps the best known of the creeds. Interestingly, you'd have thought it was written by the Apostles, seeing as it was the Apostles' Creed. It actually wasn't. But it contained a summary of the Apostles' teaching. And it went through a period of develop just after, um, so for a couple of hundred years after Jesus, and then it was formalized in the 300s. And the interesting thing is that when people got baptized in the early church, baptism is still a massive deal today, huge deal in the early church as well, because people were, were renouncing a way of life and stepping into new life and stepping into the church community at that moment. So a huge deal. So they got baptized, but at the same time, they would have used the creed as a basis of spiritual formation. They would have said, not only, uh, you know, do you believe in Jesus, your Lord and Savior, which is kind of what we do, bang, under, back up again. Really important. But is there more than that? Is it as simple as that? What else is there? And so they would have used the creeds as their spiritual formation process that they would have gone through and be like, do you agree with these things? Yes. So quite important. So the main and the plain, that's what we're going to be do looking at over the next few weeks, the Apostles' Creed. Now, although there are various expressions of the Christian church in our city and around the world, mo Orthodox Christian church agrees with what we're going to look at today. And so I'm just going to read it and it will come up on the screen behind me and we can see what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. That's going to be a fun week. And <laughs> going to make sure that's Ian's week. Um, when do you get back? Oh, you don't know. Okay. Okay. Uh, Sorry, moving on. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. There's a meaning behind Catholic Church that we'll come to, just in case you... Anyway, um, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I want you to know, as I start this series, I have no intention of preaching the creed, but rather preaching, using the creed to preach the Bible. Those two things are really di different. Here's why. Creeds hold no authority in and of themselves, but rather they point out of, outside of themselves to the ultimate authority, which is the Word of God. Maybe this could be a helpful illustration. A couple of nights ago, um, there was an amazing moon. I don't know if you saw it. Um, Saturday, full moon, Friday night. Uh, Jen was in the castle watching a film. Lucky you. I was um, outside, a bit cold. But uh, the moon was incredible. Now, the moon is awesome, but it has no light of its own. And, but it tells me that there's a light out there. The sun is casting out its radiating heat and light. And it hits the surface of the moon and reflects to us so that when we look up and we see light reflecting off the moon, we're like, wow, that's amazing. Well, the creed is reflecting the light of the word of God. So that's what I mean. It has no authority in and of itself. It is all around. It's like the sun is the word of God. The moon is reflecting the power of the sun. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about how we use the creed. 
So the creed has no authority in and of itself, and I would never preach it like it does, but rather it points back to the authority of the word of God, and it's going to be helpful to, for us to keep our, that in our head at all times. So let's get started. I'm going to be looking at I believe in God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth this morning. So before I get into that, what is a person saying when they say, I believe in God? So that's the first bit, I believe in God. Well, I, I think what they're saying is, I believe certain things are true. So we live in a society where most people would, con- well, sorry, many people would concede that there are lots of elements of Christianity that might be worthwhile. They'll look in, so not everybody would agree that, but lots of people would. You know, they'd be like, love your neighbor, that's amazing, that love thing's a really good thing. And people without faith often admit that the church and the Christian faith often helps people to be charitable. So they're grateful that people of faith are often people running soup runs and in prisons, in prison ministry, and um, lots of, you know, that they take medical trips to dangerous parts of the world. They can, they might concede that um, faith can make you kinder. It can help in breaking addictions. People might concede that the Christian faith helps in moments of real trial, for instance, when somebody dies. You know, it's in those moments. What about when there's a national tragedy? You know, when something awful happens, and actually in moments like that, there's a solidarity, and people see, okay, that's where faith's really helpful. But what people without faith sometimes react against is the the, the assertion that God is a real person who expects those who's, who he's created to follow him. Can you see, they can, they can look at it and be like, do you know what, as a set of morals, those kind of things, I get that. But that you're actually trying to follow God, well, that's a different issue. It takes courage in many circles to say, do you know what, not only is my Christian faith helpful, not only does it fi- provide comfort and strength and community and a code of morals, but I believe that what I believe about God is true. We, we looked at this at the beginning of the year in the Truth series. Christians are saying, I believe that the declarations of faith in the Apostles' Creed, the the declarations of faith made in the Bible are true descriptions of reality the way that it is. So when we're saying, I believe, and that's why I've, I've entitled this series, We Believe, that there's a moment where we come as a group of people and we say, we believe this. This is what we stand for. This is what we stand on. This is the authority. So that's the first one. I believe means that I think certain things are true. And then I believe goes a step further than just saying things are true. I believe means that I trust. It's the secondary step. So when the creed says, I believe in God, it means I have confidence in God. Faith is more than just some idea in our head. Christian faith involves our hearts as well. It involves our wholehearted response to him. So when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, what we're saying is, I rest my whole weight upon this. The substance and hope of my life rests upon this. I've invested my present, my past, and my future into this. I trust this. It isn't just believing, it's actually trusting with my time, my energy, my relationships, my money. My life should look different because of the things that I'm saying. So when the Christian church says these words together, it's, it can be really, really powerful. When we stand and recite the creed, we are rebelling in many ways against the narrative of our world. In that moment, we're saying, do you know what? My hope is not in myself. Starting point, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. You're right, for most people, probably, I believe in myself. I believe that whatever I say is true. You know, it's like, bang, in that moment, we're standing against what 
the, the narrative of our world would say is true. And we're standing together and saying, no, there's something bigger. I love that. I'm like, yes, this is foundational. We're saying, I don't need more. My hope is not in this life completely. It's not, not all here. The, 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 there's more. There's more to life than this. That my hope is not in our political system. That's what we're saying. Thank the Lord. No, but do you know what I mean? In moments, our country right now, countries, are rocked, aren't we? We're a bit like, whoa, what's happening? We're all over the place. Many people, when this is all there is, that is massively shaking. Some of you will be shaken as well. But ultimately, we're saying my hope's not here. My hope is in him. That's where my hope lies. And so when we're saying, I believe, we're saying this is where my hope is. Can you see why it's really, really powerful? Now, we are not a big liturgical church. And by that, I mean that we stand up and recite things day in, day out. We, we don't. We don't really have a massive track record of this. Some of you are like, I, I don't even know what the word liturgy means. And um, neither do I. But um, <laughs> I, I just don't think we're probably that liturgical. But we... <laughs> But can I just counter this with a moment but saying we are really passionate about people knowing what they believe. So those two things are different, aren't they? And suddenly, so to use this as a way of going, this is what we believe, is I think is really helpful. When somebody comes up to you and they say, just explain your faith to me. You're like, Shabba, Jesus is amazing. Yes. Is there anything else? Do you, do you, uh, it's like, how do you explain your faith? What are the different components of your faith? This, this helps in that process. So, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It's a great, it's a grand start. It's an epic start. Woven throughout this creed is Trinitarian understanding of God. What, what do I mean by that? Christianity among the world faiths teaches that God is triune. So, the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one being who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, for me, what's so important about this is that it means, in essence, God is relational. This is what I take out of this. So C.S. Lewis says this, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama almost. If you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. So what we see is this incredible... So when we talk about the Trinity, some of you are like, I just describe an egg. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's fine. But on a deeper level, for me, this is so foundational, this dance between the parts of the Godhead, this dance of love that's occurring. What we're saying is right in the heart of God is love. In between that is relationship, is community. That's amazing. When people say God is love, I think that they often mean, well, do you know what? Love is extremely important or that God wants us to love. But in the Christian conception, God really has love as his essence. It's right there. Community is at the heart of God. However, each of the Godhead is a distinct person. So look with me at Ephesians 3:14 to 17 it says this For this very reason I kneel before the Father okay we're talking about the Father in this moment let me just give you a tiny bit of context so that you know why 
we're kneeling before the Father. Why is kneeling before the Father? This is Paul, and he's having this moment where he's like, I'm so undone by my unworthiness. And in the verses preceding it, he's saying, I stand on grace. I stand on grace. You are absolutely amazing. So if you take grace, therefore, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. I come before the Father because I realize how incredible he is, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. He is the creator God. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Can you see? We've got the Father, we've got the Spirit, and we've got the Son in there. Verse 14, there's the Father. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit. And then we go, so that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. Triune. However, I'm going to concentrate in on the Father today. When we come to use the word Father, an incredible array of different emotions will go off in this room. So many different emotions come to the surface, and it's generally caused by our relationship with our fathers. So what I'm doing is that I'm acknowledging that when we're using the word father, there's just emotion in the room. Some of us are fathers as well, which is also another layer of complexity. <laughs> we are fathered and we are fathers. So some of the emotions that will come when we use this word father are some good. So you might have words like security. You might have love, acceptance, strength, presence, warmth, friendship. Those are, those are things that we might think about our earthly fathers. Others, however, will be, other words will be incredibly painful. So could be the word absence. You know, suddenly it's just like, he just wasn't there. He just wasn't around. It could be control. It just felt controlled. Disappointment. Passivity. Apathy. In some horrible moments, even abuse. So there are, there are all of these kind of, I'm just, what I'm just trying to say is when we use this f- word father, so much can come up. There are many people who've been w- wounded by their fathers. And I would go as far as saying that there is a father wound in our culture. And what I mean by that is absence. That's what the father wound looks like. That's what it feels like. So when we use the word father, many, many people can find it very hard to know God as father. Um, At best, what happens is they relate to Jesus. So what they do is their, their way into faith is through Jesus. They connect with Jesus. It's like, I get Jesus. But when you start talking about the word father, they're like, whoa, I... I'm finding this really difficult. The problem is, if we don't understand this, we fail to enjoy what Jesus came to achieve, which is an eternal communion with our divine dad. So this does, doesn't this just make complete sense? If you've been let down by your father, then there will be a lasting mistrust of fathers within your heart. If you then commit your life to Jesus, you'll find it easier to relate to the second person of the Trinity than the first person of the Trinity you might always have a worry that if you entrust yourself to your heavenly father, history will repeat itself and he will let you down as well. So therefore, grappling this with this word, Father Almighty, grappling with this concept of this part of the Godhead has stuff that comes up for all of us. My hope today is I want to show you how good the father is and what his true nature is like. So... 
in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, we see Jesus teaching us how to pray, and he begins it with, Our Father in heaven. Many of you will be familiar with those words, Our Father in heaven. Before anything else, Jesus encourages his apprentices, his disciples, his followers to address God as Heavenly Father. So with this brief opening address, Jesus opens up a whole new landscape. He opens up a whole new vista. And no longer is God just this remote deity figure of so many religions. You know, it's like this other that we're just scared of, the distant creator who demands submission. He is now the loving father of Jesus of Nazareth who invites us into his everlasting arms of love. It's like this, our father in heaven. In these four words, these simple words, we have this majestic portrait painted. God is our father. Some people struggle with that word. God is our dad. God is our daddy. God is our papa. You know, you can go through these different things and think, you know, and some of us will really recoil about different words that we use there and connect to one of those. In some cultures, the word father may come across as too formal. So Abba, Abba father, may therefore best be translated as daddy. If a child falls over in the street in Israel and hurts their knee, He is likely to cry out one of two things. Abba, which means daddy, or Imma, which means mummy. So so that's what we're talking about. When we're talking about this word Abba, we're talking about a close, a very personal relationship, as does Imma. So the use of the word Abba in the opening statement of the Lord's Prayer is critical and indeed radical. So it would have decided... I think the disciples themselves would have been absolutely shocked that Jesus used these words. When he was teaching them to pray, and he's like, I want you to, our Father in heaven, they would have been like, mind blown. It would have been so radical for them. First of all, they would have been shocked that Jesus chose to speak in Aramaic rather than Hebrew at the time. Aramaic was like the common language. So suddenly, generally, when you prayed, it would have been in Hebrew. It would have been a much more formal language. So suddenly Jesus was like, no, I'm bringing this into the common day language. I'm saying Abba, Father. And the, the disciples would have been like, wow, that's big. Secondly, Jesus chose to use the Aramaic word Abba in addressing God. What Jesus was doing was distinctive and unusual. Um, William Barclay once wrote, Jesus is teaching his disciples that we come to God with the simple trust and confidence with which a little child comes to a father whom he knows and loves and trusts intimate relational language so you've got that you've got the relational side of things and then secondly abba points to an infinite father so jesus qualifies the words abba with in heaven so you've got these two things going together this father is a heavenly father he is not an earthly father We could use the word Father Almighty, you know, in heaven or Father Almighty. It would be the same kind of thing because earthly fathers fall so far short of their heavenly father. That is so important. We are not to make this father in the image of our fathers. He is far greater. He is, in fact, perfect. He is majestic. He is omnipotent. Our father is the king of kings and the king of kings is our father. So the word Abba therefore does not just denote relationship, it also denotes respect. The father that we come to in prayer is no imperfect earthbound dad. 
He is the everlasting father who reigns on the throne of heaven. So this is like the lion that we see in Narnia. If you've read the Narnia books, I have the joy. Um, I've read them not too long ago, not all of them, but mo moments in them. And what we see is we see the lion, don't we? And he's not just affectionate like a kitten. He is powerful like a thunderstorm. So you've got these two sides. And we have to hold this intention because what happens as people is we love to go to one side. And you'll see this in churches. Some churches, like, they hold the holy otherness of God, this distant creator who is amazing and we are to awe. The problem is if we go too far that way, we just stand in fear. The other side of it is that we come to this intimate, you know, Abba, Abba Father. That God's just our mate and he's our friend and it doesn't matter what we do. And that's equally not true. That we've got to hold the tension between these two things. So what does it mean, our Father in heaven? This is just, um, I found this in the Father's Trust. It's a book that's been written and it says this. I found this really helpful. It means that there's no one bigger than our dad. Our dad rules. He flung stars into speckled space. He fashioned the blazing sun and deep lagoons of cloud and cluster. He created the planets, the constellations, and the galaxies. He conceived the Milky Way, the Helix Nebula, and the Pleiades. He made bubbles and arcs, nebula and auras. He paints supernovas in effervescent colors and stellar jets of iridescent glory. He outthinks the physicist and he dazzles the theologian. He preoccupies the astronomer and inspires the poet with abundant, wo poet with abundant wonder. He's beat, not the poet, well, maybe he does. <laughs> Slip of the tongue, but he is beyond the reach of the Hubble telescope or the probing range of any orbiter. He is what Einstein called the superior reasoning power. And the Bible calls the father of heavenly lights. He is my dad and he is your dad, our dad, who is in heaven, the third heaven, who dwells in unapproachable light and who will one day make his home with us on this tiny dot that is earth. Okay, so that's kind of the bigger conception of God, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You're like, kapow! Um, the awe of the Almighty. It's like, wow. We've got to hold things in tension, respect and relationship. It's really important to keep this note of respect when talking about the Abba Father revelation. We're not to domesticate God into a sentimental dad figure robbed of all of his royal glory. Moreover, he combines the two qualities that good fathers must have, authority and affection. He has authority in his capacity as the high king of heaven. And he has an affection in that he's the very epitome of what a loving father should be. So we must therefore approach this father with reverence as well as love. This is quite heady. I wanted to finish with something because we to keep this tension between respect and relationship. I wanted to finish with this. What does it feel like to be in relationship with him? I'm moving from this from the head to the heart now. How do you know in your heart that you're right with the Father? So I guess the point that I'm making is many, many of us might connect. In our culture, generally people connect quite easily with the Son, with Jesus. But if we're only connecting with the Son and not the Spirit and the Father, then we are missing out on the fullness of what God has to us. I, I've called this the Father's embrace, this last section. What does it feel like to have relationship with the Father? It's about the Father's embrace. And the phrase that I might use is also undone by grace. So 
perhaps the greatest story ever told is a parable that so many of you will be familiar with in Luke 15, which is the parable of the prodigal son. It is a parable probably that I have read more than any other parable in the whole of the scriptures. And it's probably the parable that undoes me more than any other parable. For those of you that aren't aware, and just as a reminder, you have this moment where a son comes towards his father and he says to him, Dad, I want my inheritance. Give me my share. I want to go away. And you can imagine in that moment how broken the father would have been. It's like, give me my money. I want to take it now. So the son goes off and he moves to the city. And as you can imagine, he takes all of this wealth in this moment and he lives. And it talks about in the parable that he had loose living, wild and reckless living. I mean, he lived life, properly lived life. And he would have gathered around him a whole group of people. And then one day the money runs out and he's kind of left. All of his friends will desert him in that moment. And he's just left just by himself. He's got nothing He's run away from home. He's probably thought, well, you know, I've put a moment between me and dad. And so he's there and he's in the pigsties and he's cleaning out the pigs. And he has this moment of revelation where he goes, even my father's servants live better than this. And can you imagine the tension in his heart as he's sitting there going, I'm going to have to get over my pride. I thought I would be fine and I thought it would be all right and I'm going to have to go back to my father. And so he makes this decision in this moment of revelation. He's like, Do you know what? I'm going to suck up my pride and I'm going to go home. You can read this parable on so many levels, can't you? Because there's the moment where we come to faith. This, this can be used as a salvation moment, which is I have been away. I have lived without God. And then there's this turning to go home. I also think that this parable can be used in every day is that moment where we turn away from the Lord and it's like, and he's like, come home. And so what we see is this beautiful picture of the father who has been waiting. He hasn't held this against his son. He's been waiting for his son to come home. So he sees his son from afar away and he looks and it's like, my son is coming. No pride, runs towards his son. And then there's just, and the way that I picture it, it is this embrace the father's embrace that the father comes towards the son there are no words interestingly it's not oh you've done this it's just this embrace where the father's like you're home you can imagine the son nestling into the father and you can imagine and it talks about and then the father kisses the son and what it talks about in the in the tense that it's written is that we often go on oh, there's probably this one moment of kissing no i imagine it's like this his son is home and he kisses again and again and again his son and do you know what? For me, it reminds me, as an earthly father on a far less level, I have these moments where I come home from work and I put my key in the door and I open the door and I hear this, Daddy! Now, my eldest daughter's just moving out of that zone and she's probably not quite as bothered as she was. <laughs> Sad. My younger two, the race is on for Dad. And I'm standing at the door, Daddy! Wherever they are, they will leap at me. If they're halfway up the stairs, they will just jump at me. And you have this moment where they come towards you for however long it lasts. And you have this moment where they, you embrace them. There's, there's the father's embrace. And I get, to, I get to stand there and I get to kiss their head over and over again. If me as an earthly father feels like that, imagine what our heavenly father, who is perfect and all-seeing and all-knowing, 
what he does when we come back into the Father's embrace. The picture that I want to give you and I want to leave you with is that that is always available to us. For some of us, we have not understood, and it is a journey, it is a real journey with fathering. In the same way it is with Jesus, there's a journey on, but I'm saying that the arms of your heavenly Father, the Father Almighty, are open towards his children, that we are his children who can be fully embraced by the Father. That's the picture of what it feels like to be embraced by the heavenly Father. That's what's on offer. And that's what he invites us into. And I think that is the most beautiful picture. And therefore, we never get away from that parable. That we come back and we're like, this is what it looks This is what grace looks like. This is what it looks like to have the most awesome father. And I'm excited to grow in relationship with my father, my heavenly father. And I want that for all of us. I want us not just to have a relationship with the son. I want us to know the father. Because he is good and that's what it feels like. So why don't we stand?